Well, as you know, two weeks ago, yeah, the previous week, two weeks ago, right? I don't know how to say it. I was at General Assembly in Mobile. And, of course, we had some time to go do fun things. And one of the fun things that we did is we visited the, the battleship, the USS Alabama. You ever heard of that? If, if you saw the movie Under Siege in the early 90s with Steven Seagal, that's my movie reference for the day. Um, <laughs> that's the battleship that was used in the filming of that movie. It's an old World War II uh, battleship. And it's parked there right up along the harbor or whatever, and you can go tour it. And now from, the dist- from a distance, the battleship doesn't really look that imposing. I mean, okay, it's a boat. It's, if you've been to Norfolk or one of the modern Navy bases, it's not really that big. Uh, you know, you're just not that impressive. And then you get up on it, and you see just how bristling it is with, with, with guns. And you see from a distance the, the massive 16-inch guns, but you can't tell just how big they are until you're up there on it. And these massive 16-inch guns, there's six of them on the front and five of them on the rear. And they're so big at the base that, that may, maybe if I got another big dude and we held hands and extended out, may, maybe then we could get our arms around them. I mean, it's massive. And the projectiles they shot, were, they were still on display and they would be sitting on the ground. And they were up to my chest, these projectiles. And they would use two 20-pound loads of charge to, to shoot these things. So it was just a massive, massive explosion when it goes off. And you can Google pictures of what it looks like when they fire the guns, and it looks like the whole side of the ship is on fire, just a massive ball of fire. But then I was wondering, okay, this isn't that massive of a ship. How is it that they can fire these guns all at once? And this whole thing just not get topped over or, or, or sunk. Well, you can actually go into the ship and go into the bowels of the ship. And bo- all these guns are on massive turrets that are basically all the way down into the, the bowels of the boat. And they're on these massive, I don't want to say hydraulics, but basically these shock absorbing, absorbing things so that when the guns are fired, it doesn't drive the boat over. And I was thinking about that. When you fire big guns like that, you are producing turbulence. Sometimes the turbulence in our lives is caused by the turbulence we produce. And you need a strong support in order to remain stable. But then I was reflecting further about turbulence. And I was thinking, you know, when they take a boat out on, you know, I was watching boats go out into the harbor. When they take a boat out into the, out into the bay, <laughs> the Gulf, they don't use a little lake boat. You don't put a bass boat out into the Gulf of Mexico. And you most certainly don't take your little canoe out into the ocean. If you want to fly a plane, some of you love flying. They actually have planes that fly into hurricanes. But you know what they don't use in a hurricane? A little two-seater Cessna. Because the vessel itself cannot sustain itself in the midst of all these ongoing conflicting turbulence. Sometimes the turbulence we face comes from without. And we need something strong to keep us stable in the midst of it. So turbulence. Sometimes in our life we have turbulence and it comes from within. 
like when you fire the big battleship guns. Sometimes the turbulence is from without, like when you're flying into a massive storm and it's outside of the vessel. But regardless of where the origination of the turbulence is, you've got to have something that keeps your equilibrium so that way you remain stable. Otherwise, you'll crash. We've been talking about pursuing joy. And one of the things you're going to invariably come up with as you live your life, and I know this is news to you, I know you've never experienced it thus far, but trust me, it's coming. Eventually, you're going to have conflict. Someone is going to disagree with you on something. Someone isn't going to like you. Someone is going to think you're a jerk and you're going to reciprocate. At some point, relational turbulence is coming. Imagine that. And here, we see it on display. Two ladies in a church are having a disagreement. Church conflict. Strange, huh? This is obviously such a foreign notion, we don't even need to look at it, so maybe we should just skip on, right? No, it's not. But one of the realities in life is that we are going to have conflict. We're going to have turbulence. And oftentimes, kind of like these two ladies here, they seem to be at an impasse and they're going to require some assistance because when you're really close in on a situation, sometimes you just can't see the way out. What is the way out? What is the key to maintaining your sense of equilibrium your sense of balance in the midst of turbulence. In short, how do we maintain peace in the midst of a turbulent world? How do we do that? In chapter 4, as he ends this section on pursuing joy, he's addressing a very practical topic. Peace. The peace of God made real in your daily experience. And then starting next week, he's going to move on, and he's going to start talking about contentment. So chapter 4 is eminently practical. Peace and contentment. Do these two things characterize you? If so, you know, this might be a great time to plan your vacation. If you struggle with peace, if you struggle with contentment, you definitely want to be here. Peace, what is the key? How do we, how do, we do it? Many times... Uh, when I've counseled in the army, uh, people come and they just, want, they just want quick fixes. In fact, in most psychological counseling paradigms nowadays, they will talk about solution-focused counseling. R- raise your hand if you've heard of solution-focused counseling. Solution-focused. In other words, we don't care about why you're in the problem. We don't care about your background. We don't care. None of that ma- All that matters is how do you stop the, the, the discomfort. All we want are quick fixes. And so, as we counsel married couples, or as we counsel people who are in conflict, we'll teach them things such as, you know, the speaker-listener technique, so you can actually have communication that cools it down so you can understand each other, conflict resolution, all this stuff. But really, there's a deeper secret here. There's a deeper principle to actually having peace in your life. And Paul makes reference to it. The principle, the secret, is this. 
apply big truths to your small circumstances or apply grand realities to local circumstances. In other words, find yourself in the story. And when you look at your situation in the light of a much larger reality, all of a sudden you're able to find some meaning. And you're able to find, oh, okay, this really isn't something I need to be as worked up as perhaps I'm tempted to be. Look with me at verse 1, when he says very clearly, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus, thus in the Lord. In other words, this is how you stand firm in the Lord. Okay, but what's he talking about? He's going back to his comment in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, in which he makes the grand statement that we are citizens of heaven. And from there we await a Savior who will raise our bodies from the ground and exert the same power in our lives that he uses to subjugate all things to himself. So he points them to what he had just said about the grand nature of our existence as children of God whose ultimate residence is in heaven, whose ultimate loyalty is to heaven, whose ultimate mission is for heaven. And the hope we have of the return of Christ and the end times eschatological hope of us being raised from the dead. You will die and rot in the ground, but the end is coming in which you will be raised to glory. And now he uses that hope as the basis, as the pivot point. He takes that home. This is how you'll stand firm in the Lord. And then he immediately pivots from that. I entreat these two ladies to live at peace. In other words, in light of this grand truth, locate yourself so that way you are able to then dwell with unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, we're going to apply grand truth to local problems. That is the principle to peace. And so, in this passage, we're going to see how we realize peace in our relationships, how we realize peace in our hearts, and how we realize peace in our thoughts. And if we're able to find our peace, our centeredness, in the joy of the Lord, we will be able to remain stable amidst the turbulence of our circumstances. So look with me, if you would, at verses 2 and 3. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are, writ- whose names are in the book of life. Okay, he addresses these two ladies. What are they fighting about? No one knows. Now we can guess a couple things. One, we can guess that it wasn't a doctrinal issue. Because as we've seen just a couple chapters earlier, Paul is not afraid to call people out. I mean, he's, he's a strong language when he's talking about a doctrinal problem. He doesn't do that here. So, okay, it's probably not doctrinal. We also learn in other books, like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he's not afraid to call people out when there's a gross moral issue going on. So it's probably not a matter of gross immorality. So it's not doctrinal, it's not 
moral? What is it? Who knows? But that's the point. Who knows and who cares? We get so caught up in our relationships with others about the issues, what we're fighting about, who's right, who's wrong. Oh, I'll have peace with you just as soon as you acknowledge that I'm right. And Paul's like, I just agree. I I want them to agree. He's not even addressing the issue. How many times do we fight and divide over issues that are not theological or moral? And we make them such big deals, but in the eyes of the apostle, they're not even worth mentioning. How often? How often? So, we need to agree. But how do we do it? How do we do it? Well, by living in light of the grand principle. When you look at someone who's your brother or who's your sister, look at them in light of the grand reality that whatever grievance you have against them, whatever grievance it is, maybe they've called you a jerk one too many times, maybe they've insulted your cooking one too many times, maybe they, I don't know, whatever grievance it is, keep it in light of the fact that your offense to God was infinitely greater and he sent his son who was willing to set aside all the glories and prerogatives of deity to live and die in your place you think you have a grievance with that person across the pew that person across the street that person across the house god's grievance with you was great your grievance is like Kennesaw Mountain, and God's grievance with you was like Denali. And God destroyed it. How dare we hold on to it? How dare we? Especially as we have seen earlier in this book that Christianity is a team effort. We need each other, kind of like the phalanx. We need to be shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, because if you go down, then my side is exposed And if I go down, yours is. So what are we bickering for about these non-issues or issues that in the light of eternity are non-issues? Why? But then he recognizes that these two ladies are probably at the point where they're just not hearing each other. They're just not. And so he calls upon the true companion to step in and intercede. To be a peacemaker in the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He calls upon his true companion. Now, who is that true companion? We don't know for sure. But imagine this. Remember, this letter was going to be read from the pulpit. Okay? And so he's writing in the plural. He's saying, y'all, y'all do this, y'all do that, y'all don't do this. And then all of a sudden he goes into a profound singular. I want you, true companion. So you're out here and I'm reading this to you. I want you, true companion. And I bet they started looking around. Who's he talking about? I wonder how long that Philippian jailer was looking around. I wonder who the you is. I wonder how long Lydia was looking around. I wonder who that you is. I wonder how long that girl from whom the demon had been driven 
was looking around. I wonder how long everybody looked around until it dawned on them that the you was each of you. Each of you. We are called for the sake and good of our body, for the sake and good of the people in our church, to each pursue the peace of each other. Because we are one. If you go down, I'm at risk. If I go down, you're at risk. And so we are called to be peacemakers in light of God's grand reality that we are on a mission to bring salvation to this dead and dying world. And our witness is compromised if there is unresolved conflict in the body. So we must step up and proactively do the hard and uncomfortable work of being peacemakers. Peacemakers. So, first, we realize peace in our relationships when we look at ourselves and each other in the light of the grand narrative. We keep the grievance that we have with them in light of the grievance that God had with us and realize, I have nothing then to hold against the other person. But yet sometimes people are just too close and they don't see it. And so he advises us and he pleads with us, step in and intercede. But how do we do that? Well, he then breaks it down. And starting in verse 4, 4 through 9, he starts elaborating on this is, this is the kind of stuff you bring to the table to help us resolve our conflict. He talks about our feelings or our heart in verses 4 through 7. And then in 8 and 9, he talks about our thoughts. And that makes total sense. Because are not our conflicts usually the result of internal discord that is going on because of conflicted feelings or erroneous thoughts? If you think wrong and you feel wrong, you're going to act wrong. Right? And he spends the bulk of it on the heart. Verses 4 through 7 reference the heart. Let your reasonableness be apparent to all. Let's look at it. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, so he wants us to understand that the heart is the central thing here, and it's very true. The heart is the center of our emotional responses to things, and it's entirely possible in an emotionally charged situation to bypass the reason altogether, to bypass the intellect, and to act straight out of what we're feeling. Emotions are powerful. Emotions are visceral. Emotions can also be easily manipulated. So we must guard them. We spend a lot of time listening to our emotions. Our emotions talk back to us. Did you know that? And so we need to shape our emotions. 
And so that's what he's going to get to when he talks about the mind. But, but people sometimes think that emotions are strictly uh, natural, that you can't affect them at all. If I feel something, it's natural and it's okay. Know your emotions, and I've done a lot of thinking about this. What is an emotion? It is a, this is my definition based upon all my thinking, okay? But work with me, I'll explain it. It is a response that, your, that you have when your worldview butts up against a stimulus. Human beings have common emotions, happiness, sadness, anger, despair, whatever. But not everybody is made happy by the same thing, are they? Not everybody is bothered by the same thing. Culturally, even, we can be grouped. We, generally speaking, would not be, uh, we would be bothered if we saw a 10-year-old boy walking out into a minefield to collect scrap metal. That would bother almost all of us. But in other parts of the world, guess what? That doesn't bother them at all. I've seen it. I've seen parents send their kids out into the minefield to look up scrap. And it's okay in their mind. Certain things bother us, certain things don't bother other people. And now why is that? If emotions are simply natural, that cannot be controlled or taught, then why is it not the same across the board? It's because we have a worldview at play that has conditioned us to respond viscerally in the moment when something intersects with that. So we have a worldview that tells us what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is beautiful, what is ugly, what is proper, what is improper, what is honorable, what is dishonorable. And unfortunately, that can cause us, when we have stimulus happen, to react. And people know, social scientists know, that if you can link a memory to an emotion, it will settle in your mind like concrete. This is why, for the older generation, they remembered de- uh, 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 the attack on Pearl Harbor. That's why many of you may remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when JFK was shot. Even though you've probably had many life experiences since then that actually had more effect on your life, but they weren't connected with memories, so you don't really think about them, or they weren't connected with emotions. Emotions are powerful because people act out of them. We come to believe someone is not good. Someone is not for me. Someone is opposed to me. Someone is bad. And then we treat them in light of how we feel about them. We have positive regard. We have negative regard. And what happens then when I'm concerned? Well, that's called anxiety. Our lives are often characterized by anxiety. We have fears, soft fears. We're not sure what's going to go down. We don't know where the threat's coming from. We just know it's there. And our hearts churn. How do we deal with that? Well, we let our reasonableness be known to all. What does he mean by reasonable? What does he mean? Well, that word is hard to translate in the Greek. 
That's why if you open up the various English translations, there's a different word used in each place. Uh, in some places it means, or in some versions they use the word reasonable, like here. They use the word graciousness. They use the word gentle. They use the word moderate. May your moderation be known. Forbearing. Someone who's reasonable is someone who has learned to basically go with the flow so they're not prone to emotional excess in either way. They keep their stability. And they keep their stability by doing, verse 4, rejoicing in the Lord. It is absolutely imperative as you look at this passage, as you try to figure out how do I get peace in my life, that you reflect upon everything we've learned in this book about humility, about gentleness, about unity, about seeing your circumstance as your duty assignment, about seeing Christ as your all so that to live is Christ, so that when you die, you experience dying as gain, so that way you are increasingly, progressively seeking God, finding your delight in Him, Making that your center. That is the thing you focus on so that when anything good or anything bad happens, it's not the central thing that shakes you off your equilibrium. If you are characterized by moderation, by reasonableness in, in this word, in this, in this, then you're the kind of person who is kind of unflappable. Yes, you're happy when good things happen and you're sad and bad, but you roll with it. And you get back to your sinner soon. You think I'm being a little extreme or, or not, not making... Look with me at Luke 10. Well, don't turn there. Just trust me. Sorry. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 70. And they come back and they are thrilled. <coughs> Even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus, he shares their excitement for a minute. Oh, yes, I saw Satan fall like fire from the sky. But then what does Jesus tell them? Do not rejoice that you can cast demons out. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. In other words, these guys, this is amazing. Demons are subject to us. I mean, think about the, the, the sense of power you would feel. Wow. Don't rejoice in that, guys. Get, get, get your focus back where it needs to be. The grand narrative that you are known and loved and accepted in heaven. So that way these good times are not ultimate times. So that when they end, you don't fall into despair. And oh, by the way, if you're rejoicing that you can cast out a demon, what happens when the day comes that the demon comes along that you can't cast out? And oh yeah, that happens near the end of his ministry in Mark 9. They can't cast out a demon. And Jesus says, well, Jesus is able because he's God incarnate. Don't locate your sense of rejoicing, of doing and finding joy in your circumstances, no matter how great. Locate your joy in the reality that you are known, loved, accepted in heaven. And everything else. Your triumphs will be leavable and your defeats will be bearable because you're keeping your eye on the goal. So, that is how we do it. And then he says, 
Let not your anxieties overwhelm you. Instead, what do you say to do? Pray. That's a church answer, isn't it? Pray about it. Oh, so many of us are so slow to pray. It may be a church answer, but it's a true answer. How many of you turn in your bed and struggle to fall asleep, struggle to stay asleep, struggle to stay focused because you're worrying about all this, that, and the other? How many of you drive around previewing or replaying conversations you've had because you're just worried about how things are going to go? And at what point do we ever think, oh, I should bring this before God? You know what I find amazing? Is that it seems that Jesus went to bear God's wrath on the cross with greater joy than we run to the fountain of grace that is the throne of God that we have through prayer. Think about that. We have access to the court of heaven in prayer. And our God is a good and loving Father. And Jesus is a kind older brother. And the Spirit is a wonderful intercessor. And we have this. And it's not just any prayer, though, that we give that settles our heart. It's a prayer with thanksgiving. You're having struggles. You're afraid of how things are going to turn out. You don't know. It's uncertain. It's up in the air. And you're praying with thanksgiving. Ben, how do I pray with thanksgiving when I don't know how it's going to turn out? That's the point. That is the point. When you adopt a posture where you're focusing on the glory of God and how the closer you get to it, the more joyous you feel, then as you look at your circumstances, you can say, you know what, God? I don't know how you're going to answer this. You may answer it this way, that way, this other way. You, you may th throw in an answer from right field somewhere. But it's all good. It's all good. Whether this spot ends up being a, just a nothing or whether it ends up being stage four skin cancer, it's all good. Because I know that you are working all things to your glory and my ultimate good. Does your prayer life, is your prayer life characterized by thankfulness, thanksgiving, knowing that whatever he brings you, it is pushing you towards the goal of more of Jesus? And if that's your prayer life, increasingly you will see that your worries and cares in this life fade away. I'm sure there's a song about that, right? Something about the things of the world going strangely dim. Bear that in mind. Turn your affections over to the Lord. And then they won't lie to you so much. They won't lie to you. And then finally, we need to realize peace in our minds. If you think bad thoughts, if you're not thinking truth, you won't feel truth and you won't act out truth. If you have built your worldview on sand, it will shake. He says in verses 8 and 9, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, 
worthy of praise. Think about these things. And the God of peace will be with you. How often do we spend our time filling our minds with garbage? How many of us have let our senses of humor be formed and shaped by trash? How many of us have let our expectations for our spouse, for what a successful life looks like, for our kids upon filth? How many of us have let our understanding of beauty be shaped by lies? How many of us have let our expectations and understanding of what church life looks like be based upon untruths? There is so much untruth out there. And we spend our times reading it, listening to it, watching it. They, they, they show some poignant scene on a movie and they accompany it with that music and it's just so dramatic. It can't be wrong. It couldn't be less wrong if it tried. Couldn't be more, sorry, you get the point. <laughs> Apply big picture truths. We need reality. This world exists under a delusion. Don't allow your understanding of what is right, wrong, good, bad, ugly, or beautiful to be shaped by lies. And if you do that, you'll be less likely to feel lies. And your emotions won't be so likely to tell you lies. And then you won't be so likely to interpret your neighbor in the light of those lies. You are a child of God. If you are in Christ, you are beloved. And the Holy Spirit resides in you. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Keep those grand things in mind. We are in progress, you and me together. Yeah, you may do some things that irritate me. I may do some things that irritate you. But guess what? In the grand scheme of things, these are things not even worth counting. Let's get on with loving each other. Let's get on with loving the lost. Let's get on with loving the Lord and singing praises to His name. And Jesus will work out the rest. You want peace? Fill your mind with truth. Turn your emotions over to His good care. And pursue peace in your relationships at all cost, forgetting what grievances you have with one another. Let's pray.